Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Hey, friends. How you doing? I'm doing great. Got a good show today. And before we start, where were you 10 years ago? I'll tell you what. <laughs> I was in Nuremberg, and I've got a story about today's guest that I'm going to talk about as soon as you finish this introduction. Well, that's great. I can't wait for that. This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, The Toy Guy, and Beacon Media. And Richard, tell us the Germany story. I was in Nuremberg when the Rainbow Loom fad hit. And our guest today, June was standing in the middle of a huge crowd of people trying to get at him. I thought about trying to work my way through, but I was afraid I'd be beaten to death. (laughs) How popular Rainbow Loom was, and there was a feeding frenzy. And it's been 10 years, it's hard to believe. And we have June and Chris Tidwell, on the show today, and they're going to be talking about Rainbow Loom, their journey, and the 10th anniversary. And I've known Chris Tidwell since his Ohio art days, so he's another industry veteran, and he is the CEO of Tune. so we, we, are, we have a high-power panel today. Let's start out with some big news about the 10th anniversary of Rainbow Loom. Tune, tell us a little bit about this, this program that you're doing. We have program called Tunes Challenge. And what it is, is uh, we uh, challenge uh, the uh, school students to come up with a story about kindness that features uh, our newest uh, product. It's called mm-hmm. Lumi Pals. Lumi Pals has this uh, cute uh, charms uh, figures that you can wear on your bracelets. So uh, we would like to uh, use that as uh, deliver positive messaging to kids and uh, help them to write, uh, you know, exciting kind story uh, during summertime this year. And you're going to be in schools around the United States, that's correct? Uh, Yes, uh, we're going to roll out this program for United States and Canada. And that's coming this summer in June? Uh, That's correct. Uh, The contest will start right before the summer uh, summer starts. And then kids will have all the time during summertime to, you know, so we'll announce the winner right after school starts. If I may jump in quick, Chris, and that is the fact that it, it's not just going to be a winner. Every single student within every single school that enters this, they're, they're going to be recognized. There'll be things to come back. And the other part is... There'll be actually 10 winners in North America, in U.S. and Canada, and those 10 winners will win $2,022 to go towards <laughs> our art programs at school. Well, that's great because so, those are historically underfunded. What a great project. So that is today, but let's go back in time to June's coming up with the idea for a new craft. Now, I can tell you, when I was a kid, I used to, in the summertime, like making, we call it gimp. Gimp. Gimp bracelets and necklaces and making potholders. Well, what Tune did was create a whole new craft. So, Tune, can you tell us a little bit about it? 
I have never thought that I would come up with anything that is popular at all. So all I wanted to do in the past was to have fun with my daughters. So this was uh, obviously 10 years ago, and they were uh, making uh, bracelets by hands. Uh, they learned it from school. So the older Teresa was then uh, a 12-year-old, and she was teaching teaching the younger, uh, my daughters, uh, Michelle, the, she was a nine-year-old. So both of them were making bracelet. And uh, I have been always a nosy dad. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so I uh, sat in and, you know, uh, played with them and then uh, started to think that, you know, maybe I can make it more exciting. Um, so I was an automotive engineer by trade. I always wanted to make something fun. I uh, came up with a loom with pins where uh, you can uh, put multiple rows of rubber bands in parallel to make the bracelet thicker. So that's all I did. I, I came up with the looms and then I make bracelet for them. And then rather than having a tiny string of uh, rubber band link, I was able to crisscrossing the rubber bands into a thicker bracelet. Then I give it to them. They look at it. They were like stunned. They were like, Dad, we have never seen anything like this. It's so cool. I was like, wow, this, I know it's cool, right? So I was exciting, excited with them. And then next thing was uh, they took it to school, show it to their friends, and then came back with a list of orders from their <laughs> friends. I'm like, uh, girls, I don't think we can do this. <laughs> so that was the moment that I, I knew that we are, we were onto something. It's interesting to me oh. the way that it took off, because I know that the year that it really started to hit, it had been used at summer camps a lot and, and for crafting. And so you had all these kids who went into summer camps and then like dandelion seeds, they went out into the world. And, and the word of mouth on this was so... Amazing. And the other thing I really thought about with, with Rainbow Loom was that you were really at the forefront of the making and sharing videos. And that's how you built the community was kids were making videos of what they did and sharing them on YouTube. And really, that was way ahead of the whole influencer thing. And it really was how you built that community around the product. I didn't know about this 10 years ago. And there were no uh, we so-called YouTubers. You know, there, there right. were no YouTubers in the past. Yeah. Uh, but there was a time that, you know, social media become, uh, um, it's, it's the early days of social media where I heard about kids that make a bracelet and show show it, uh, you know, you, uh, on their channel. And they get really popular to the point that uh, some girls, you know, like 12, 13 year old, I know that's particular one. She makes over $240,000 a year. And she was a 13-year-old back then. Uh, so, yeah, the, um, the impact of uh, social media really uh, spread the word uh, on, you know, on our products and how to use it. So, June, that first year, I'm sure you were overwhelmed. Yet you were able to produce product and get it to market. And then one of the unfortunate sides of the toy industry is we have some copiers out there. And even though your product is patented, 
there were those who did knockoffs of the Rainbow Loom. I know you had to fight those. Where are we now as far as infringement is concerned? Is, is you have a pretty clear pathway now? Obviously, it's different now. In the past, uh, we were new to the business, and also online uh, space is uh, is quite chaotic in the past. And nowadays, I think it's much organized. There was certain enforcement that we can do to fight the counterfeits and the copycats. For example, in Amazon, uh, nowadays we can enroll in the program called Brand Registry. We do uh, work with companies. They are professional in doing this, in taking down listings. So um, it's, it's much better nowadays here. Yeah. One of the things with Chun and I is, is he told me, call me anytime. I took him up on it. So it was maybe about four weeks ago, Richard, that uh, it was about 1035 at night. But I hate infringers. I've been there. I called him. He picked up in two rings. And I said, Chun, I'm, I'm sure about this. But if you have an issue, you got to let me know now because I'm about to file on this platform. And I'll share it called MadeInChina.com. There's hundreds of knockoffs calling themselves Rainbow Loom. He said, okay, go for it. So that within 48 hours, we had taken down hundreds. Mm-hmm. It, it's still happening every week. And unfortunately, we all have to do our due diligence to keep infringing and counterfeiters off of our business. What advice would you give to toy companies who have a popular item that is at risk of being infringed upon in in terms of building a structure in your company to make sure that you're protected? Do your homework. That means you you can't take anything for granted. We have this search engine with Google and, and other platforms. Don't accept it. If and, and it's from the top down because your senior management lives it you know in you have to see this so we're a global economy and unfortunately a lot of the world doesn't respect ip rights ip rights are being violated and we have to eliminate this to help our business even from the standpoint of safety for children i mean that's the most critical part of it if a child gets hurt your whole business could go down even if it's an infringer, they think it's your company. Right. So we have to do our work. One of the things we often see in the toy industry when there has been a fad, that that fad has to be managed so that it can become a staple item. And and that's what successfully happened with Rainbow Loom. And even though it's not top of mind in the media or it's not it's not quote unquote a craze any longer. You have a very, very stable business. What does that business look like today? What are your channels of distribution and who are your customers? I think the most important thing that, you know, any company, any toy company need to be focused on, that's what I believe, is to focus on what you do best. And uh, what we do best is come up with tools that help kids to make rubber band bracelet that is fun that they feel like something that they create and they they value it, you know, and then they give it to friends or give it to the loved ones. So those, this is the area that we focus on. 
what our customer uh, today are the big box stores. We realize that the focus now is not only on big box store. We have to look at across the board from the mass, for example, uh, you know, Target, Walmart, down to the, you know, the, the mid-tier big box store to the independent stores. So we, we wanted to expand in all areas. Chris, you talked a minute ago about the real danger of knockoffs that they can destroy the perceived value and even the safety valuation of products. So what what makes Rainbow Loon a, a quality product? To answer your question, Richard, there's more variety, there's better quality, there's a, a reason for collectability where a consumer can buy in at a low price to a high price and be remiss without mentioning a man named Patrick, who's Chun's longtime boyhood friend that actually works with all the components in all our factories across the, the globe. You know, one of the things that's so challenging for a craft is kids want to feel successful when they do it, and they want to get into it easily and then become more sophisticated as they play. One of the things you do is put a lot of tutorials on the site. Talk about the importance of those tutorials in helping kids be successful and stay involved in the craft. Rainbow Loom is um, it's quite a difficult craft. You know? So what we wanted to do is that to minimize the effort and maximize the reward where we can show kids how to use the product in a step-by-step way. So it's a very great platform for us to use uh, where we can you know, show right from the beginning to the end and anyone who uses it can always pause and go back and then you know, look at the step that they may be a little bit more difficult so we can go back and relearn it again. So I think it's great. Uh, two type of uh, videos out there. <laughs> so one type is uh, they will remake, uh, one, one type of uh, YouTuber, they will remake our videos uh, to, into their own version of tutorial. And then the other group of, uh, I would say, more talented uh, YouTubers, they, they make their own version of creations. And then there will be some, something that we have not seen before. We call them a uh, Loom expert or Loom star expert. I, I think you can't understate the importance of YouTube instructional videos. I think you can learn to do anything on YouTube. And I think that that's the way that kids become successful and share and elevate it. That brings me to a question about the Loom community. That's a big presence on your site. And it's a, it's a way for people to share and it's a way for you to communicate with them. Do you have any estimate about how big your Loom community is at this point? I think there are 250,000 members in there right now. Uh, at one point in the past, we had uh, close to a million members. <laughs> but obviously, the popularity is, uh, is, is being like crazy and then down. But now it's growing back. So uh, we are excited about that part. How have the last two years been for Rainbow Loom and... What does the future look like? So um, I remember when pandemic hits, this is back in 2020, um, March, uh, everything just shut down. It was a scary time. I'm sure everyone can relate to that. Um, but then we get calls from our customers. They asking us to ship product right away. 
I think back then what happened was kids uh, stranded at home and uh, they wanted to have something to do. So our sales will suddenly pop. So it continued to grow very strong throughout you know, the whole year of 2020. And we end up to double our business in 2020 as opposed to compared to 2019. When I came in late last year, one of the things that was very clear is the supply chain affected how high is high. And we had a particular account that said, well, congratulations, you had the fifth best-selling arts and craft item. And this is of many. And they said, well, we sold out of it in five weeks. So needless to say, for this year, it's going to be a lot different. The one thing that really got to me, along with forecast planning for for what is going to be a great year, June didn't raise prices. We could all on this call probably name some people that raised prices like four times, but he didn't. What he wanted to do was stay committed with his retail partners. And he'd say, why, June? And and he would say, because I want to have fun. This is about having fun for me. And how many other people in this industry are going to tell you that when that's their major motive? I want to have fun with my career. And I believe it. Okay, so we're going to ask each of you our wind-up question that we ask all our guests on the Playground podcast here in Season 4. We want to know what was your favorite play experience as a child. And Chris, I'll start with you. Hot Wheels. I love being able to take the Hot Wheels, race against friends, and run it down the tracks and do the loops. Tune, what did you love to play with as a kid? Um, I Actually, I like to play with uh, cars. When we were little, uh, I, as I grew up in Malaysia, we don't have a lot of toys. We have to make our own toys. Uh, so I like to make toy cars from uh, this uh, mattress box, that uh, used mm-hmm. mattress box. And um, the fun part is um, it involves a lot of imagination. Uh, it doesn't look exactly like a, a car, <laughs> right. but, uh, but with imagination, it makes it a lot of fun. And it led you to being an automotive engineer, correct? That may have some connection there. (laughs) I think so. I think so. Well, this has been great. Chris Tidwell tuning. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. We're looking forward to another 10 years of excitement and creativity with Rainbow Loom. Thanks for spending the time with us today. Thank you, gentlemen. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about things that are top of mind and top of the toy industry right now. And we're going to have a little bit of a serious conversation about marketing to kids. But first, we want to talk about the kids we were when we were marketed to. Richard, you got into real estate really early. Yes. When we were kids, the cereal box prizes were extremely important. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a competition between you and your mother as to who would have to eat the cereal <laughs> that you insisted she buy because there was a prize inside. One of the prizes I won was sponsored, I believe, by the Quaker Oats Company. And let me just say as an aside, I have never eaten Quaker oats. <laughs> never will eat Quaker oats. But 
they were giving away one square inch of land in Alaska. Now, <laughs> as a five-year-old, uh, I was very impressed by this because they actually ran television ads showing <laughs> salmon leaping out of the street <laughs> <laughs> and people fishing and having fun in Alaska. And I thought I could grow corn on it. When <laughs> <laughs> corn. And I sent away for it. And uh, I read recently that they sell now for $40 a piece. Not the land. I'm sure that was totally bogus. Uh, I lost mine, of course. Uh, and uh, But it was an example of marketing to kids at a time that was, if it's possible, far more shameless than today. It was very powerful. I remember getting, I think it was on the back of Apple Jacks, which I did not like, but my younger brother did. And you could send away for a Woody Woodpecker cup and bowl set. And the, and the bowl looked like a hollowed out log and the cup had Woody Woodpecker on it. It was a dollar. And I can remember taping four quarters to the to the to the cardboard thing and sending it off to Battle Creek, Michigan. I got my Woody Woodpecker cup and bowl. <laughs> I loved it. I lost it. And now it's on eBay for a great deal of money. <laughs> I'm not buying it. But we were as a culture, as kids, we were inundated with advertising and it became part of our culture, part of what we talked about part of what we we sang commercial jingles we it was really part of how we learned about brands and speaking of jingles i would like to now sing the original applejack song which was a bowl a day keeps the bullies away wow i don't i don't even remember that one but i'm not sure anybody else does but i would say that instead of wedgehood you had <laughs> <laughs> you could have had a complete set of woodpecker, Woody Woodpecker things, and there were there were many other things. These these prizes, decoder rings, and all of that stuff. But you point out in a recent article that there's a lot of books coming out saying how advertising is toxic to children and how we're corrupting people. And, and this has been a very popular trend for years to say that advertising is corrupting children's minds. And perhaps it is. But you also point out that they're not getting away from it. I read an article published on April 13th. It was entitled, Marketing to Kids is a Good Thing. And let me explain that. Uh, and again, I will be self-referential in going back to my childhood, uh, in which in comic books at that time were a wonderful page of ads for wacky things kids oh, could buy. X-ray glasses, a fake vomit. But I saw an ad that for a dollar, I could get a footlocker full of army men. Oh, wow. So I sent a dollar in and it came and it came and I, rather than a three foot by four foot wooden foot locker, it came <laughs> in a really crappy little cardboard box. <laughs> and the army men were all two dimensional. 
I've never seen anything quite like it. Right. And I thought, crap. So later in life, when I would go out to buy a car or wash machine and the salesman was working me over, I'd stop and think, hmm, is this those army men? <laughs> <all this?" laughs> a valid so, point. So my point is this. Children live in a consumer society. And they will have to grow up and navigate a society in which everybody is trying to sell them something all the time. You learn to be a consumer by some very small disappointments in childhood. I agree. Now, most of what's marketed is good, and they feel good about it. But whether it's good, and which is most of the time, or doesn't work out, they're learning very important lessons about how to be discerning with advertising and promotion. So that's why I think the net-net is that we do them no favors by protecting from the world they're going to have to live in. I agree. And I think those little disappointments are are very important because it does teach you to be skeptical. And skepticism is, in this case, a, a very good thing. Speaking of comic books, my friend Frank bought two things from a comic books that we absolutely loved. One was Waterproof Fuse. So... <laughs> <laughs> So you could have cherry bobs underwater and and blow them up. And the other was he got a cattle prod, (laughs) a real cattle prod. It took 8D batteries, and we tried it out on his sister, and she didn't like it. (laughs) I guess not. I remember they also advertised a little tiny camera, which seemed so cool. Right, which was not. Yeah, but it looked like it would be cool. And so uh, there was something in retrospect kind of charming about all that folder off. As we keep saying, it does it does teach kids to be consumers of advertising just as they are consumers of product. Just as you know that you have a certain level of safety and attention you need with a power tool, you need that level of safety and attention when you're looking at a commercial and going, would it fulfill the promise it appears to make? I laugh at all of these TV commercials now, especially for toys that aren't so great, where the bulk of the TV commercial is the children reacting joyfully to it, to this piece of plastic doing something. All I can say is if I still have my square inch of land, I would build the world's smallest shopping center. (laughs) And if I still had my Woody Woodpecker bowl and spoon, I probably would uh, try to sell it on eBay, though... Uh, it did go through the dishwasher a lot, and it probably would not be in mint condition as they would want it on eBay. And in the meantime, we're going to keep watching advertising, and we appreciate that you keep listening to us. This is the Playground Podcast. And this is the musical version of the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Burr, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy and Beacon Media Group. Thank you for listening to us and indulging us in a little bit of silliness. Happy spring, and we'll see you next time.